church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played a tambourine so well. Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning. She said, Baby, sister, don't you run so fast. You might fall on a piece of glass. Might be snakes there. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Memory in My Hands with our guest, John Kay. That was Grandma's Hands, performed by Mary Clayton, a cover of a Bill Withers song. I chose this version mostly because it's Mary Clayton, who's featured on the Rolling Stones song, Gimme Shelter. War, children, it's just a shot away. I love that song. But I chose this song also because of the cover of our guest book. It features a hand holding a very small wood carving of a hand, and it seems to me that hands are a very important part of this story. I'm joined in the studio by John Kay to discuss his most recent published, excuse me, recent book published by Indiana University Press, Folk Art and Aging, Life Story Objects and Their Makers. Kay is IU Professor of Practice and Director of Traditional Arts Indiana in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. His book makes the strong point that growing old doesn't have to be seen as an eventual failure, but rather as an important developmental stage of creativity. In the book, Kay explores how elders choose to tap into their creative and personal potential through making life story objects. Carving, painting, and rug hooking not only help seniors cope with ailments of aging and loneliness, but also to achieve greater satisfaction with their lives. Whether revived from childhood memories or inspired by their capacity to connect with others, meaningful memory projects serve as a lens for focusing on, remaking, and sharing the long ago. These activities often help elders productively fill the hours after they've raised their children, retired from their jobs, and or lost a loved one. These individuals forge new, new identities for themselves that do not erase their earlier lives, but build on them and new lives that include sharing scenes and stories from their memories. Welcome to Interchange, John Kay. Thank you very much. It's great being here. <laughs> I'll start with the opening of a poem by the Spanish poet uh, Pedro Salinas, Memory in My Hands. Today my hands are memory, my heart can't remember. It hurts from so much remembering. But in my hands remains the memory of what they have held. This struck me as a major aspect of your book, John, I guess made clear, as I said, by the cover. Um, memory is a big part of this, right? Yeah, very much so. It's, uh, uh, it's looking at this work that elders often do uh, with kind of expressing their lives, expressing who they are through the things that they make. And what I became very interested in was the fact that while it's made in the present, it's often created from from fodder from the past mm-hmm. uh, with this idea of some future time when they're going to be able to share it with other people. Mm. That's pretty interesting. Let's uh, Before we get into that, because I think that is also, again, a very interesting part of the book, the idea of the confluence of past and present and how we make of... Uh, you know, what we can make out of those, that particular confluence, I suppose. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about some, um, uh, I guess, uh, definitions, maybe some terms to look at. Let's talk about folk art 
first in terms of what folk art really means as opposed to other kinds of art, I suppose, or if there is a particular distinction to make. Right. Uh, well, in the book, uh, I skirted actually defining what folk art was. <laughs> oh, you're stuck now, John. Uh, no, no, now I'm going to have to go out <laughs> on a ledge here. Uh, and, and one of the reasons for that was the fact that it's not something that there's one definition for. There's multiple ways of constructing the idea of folk art. And I didn't want to uh, foreclose other people's uh, understanding. So I tried to pick objects that, uh, for example, I- I'm a folklorist, stuff that folklorists would maybe identify with, but also stuff that art historians mm-hmm. would also be able to recognize. And without getting bogged down in definition, I, uh, I-, I-, I skirted... Uh, the folk art definition, but I, I will right here on Interchange go out on a ledge. Um, uh, when I talk about folk art, I'm not necess- necessarily talking about a style of art, like there's fine art and there's folk art, and folk art being the lesser. When I talk about folk art, I'm not talking about the the, the folk uh, the the art of some rural or underclass people. I, I believe that we all can make folk art, and we probably all do have some type of folk expression uh, in in our lives. Uh, by invoking the, the term folk, uh, I, I link into the idea that folklorists use that it's some type of artistic communication in some type of group or, or, or setting. So I'm invoking this notion of the social. Hmm. Uh, so it's not just the making of art, but the making of art as a communicative act, a way of uh, telling people something, expressing an idea to, uh, to people. So when I say folk art, I'm really talking about uh, a special type of art that is uh, in, in its use, in its, uh, its capacity to facilitate social interactions mm. and to communicate ideas. Well, that makes, good, that makes real good sense, actually. Uh, obviously, um, the idea of this book is how the seniors and the elders here work in that space. Uh, that that's part of what they're doing. Also, is 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 speaking through their art to, in within a community and to a community as well. Definitely, and and I think it's really important to to note that uh, one of the problems that many elders face is this idea of loneliness and boredom and isolation. What, what's often called the 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 plagues of growing older, mm-hmm. uh, and the folks that I talk about in in the book. Uh, have used their creative practices as a way to, to, to overcome those things that beset so many of the, of the oldest generations. Right. Let's look at another term. Uh, elder is a, is a term that um, we, I don't know what happened to that term or how, like what its, what its um, fluctuations over time have been. Elders, uh, obviously a term of respect, um, but we had sort of fallen out of the vernacular, I suppose. Trying to come up with a term to actually called an older adult. That's another mm-hmm. f- one I used quite a bit in there. Senior. In, senior, senior. I try to, to avoid. Mm-hmm. I use a few okay. times okay. in there uh, because it, it, it's got kind of uh, a bad rap, mm. too. It didn't, you know, if you think about being a senior in a job, it's, it's, right. a, it's a good thing. Or right. senior sure. in school is a great thing. Right. Uh, but, but we've slowly uh, stigmatized uh, these terms. Elder is another one of those terms that uh, used to, in, in traditional societies, 
uh, the, the elders were the keepers of wisdom. The, right. the elder was a, a position of honor. You think about in Christendom, uh, elders are considered uh, uh, a lot of uh, the leaders are, are heads, and it's a point of honor and, and respect. Uh, but uh, I have to be honest, when I used the word elder with some of the, when I was talking with some of the, the older folks uh, that I was working with, <laughs> right. uh, like Bob Taylor, when he read it, he was like, I'm not sure how I feel about being called an elder. And he's in his 80s. You know, right, it's like, right. I don't know when you want to pick up using that. So I tried to move back and forth. I use mm. senior sparingly. I used elder when it was a time of... Uh, I wanted to conjure respect, and I used older adult when I was just talking about a group of people of a certain age. This is Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is on how art, story, and aging can make meaningful days. And I'm joined in the studio by John Kay, Director of Traditional Arts Indiana and Professor of Practice in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Um, So there are five elders, and I'm going to use the term because I do think it sounds respectful. Um, I've liked it as a term. Um, So I hope that, you know, that's okay to elders uh, or older adults. Um, I like it. I'm getting there someday. Okay. <laughs> That's right. you're, yes, uh, I won't say. He, he looks young. Um, now, there are five elders, uh, uh, maybe a couple of more you mentioned in the book. Bob Taylor, who's a carver, wood carver. Uh, Gus Potoff, is that right? Yes. Uh, who paints. Marion Sykes, who hooks rugs. Uh, and they're called hookers. Yes. Which I like that Proudly. joke, a little joke in your book. Although it's not a joke, they're called hookers. Uh, John Schoolman, is that right? Yes, yeah. Schoolman. And he paints and inscribes canes or walking sticks. And Milan Opasic? Opasic. Opasic. It depends you. on who you who he was talking oh, to, okay. who, how he pronounced his Serbian last name. Serbian or Croat? Uh, Serbian. Oh, okay. he's Serbian, right. Milan Opasic. Opasic. Okay. Who makes musical instruments, uh, the, the tambura and guitars in particular? Yeah, he, he made a whole variety of, of musical instru- instruments, but... But uh, mostly in the Tamburitsa family, primas, brachas, bagarias, different okay. instruments like that. Now, um, my grandma uh, wrote stories, and my grandfather made toys out of wood. He was a carpenter. Uh, I'm not sure they engaged in this um, in this practice the way these particular. I, I can't say for sure. I didn't really talk to them about it. It's another issue in the book that we we've don't often pay attention when we should necessarily it's part of the reading this book made me a little sad for myself and my grandparents actually uh, not having really engaged with them about some of the things that that we were uh talking about and that they'd lived through um we did occasionally talk about it but reading this book made me wonder about the depth of that experience and and how you know i could have shared it better um, and th- how they could have shared it better if they knew how to as well. It's an interesting aspect of the book to try to figure out, you know, are these unique individuals? Because they are incredibly skilled at what they're doing. Um, and I'm sure there are other um, less skilled, perhaps. Uh, we can talk about this as well, what it means to be uh, this kind of artist and how they commit this practice. So let's quickly talk about and we don't have a lot of time, sorry, in this in this segment, but I'd like to talk about Bob uh, Taylor and Gus uh, Potoff in, in this section, if we could. Uh, Bob, again, wood carvings, he calls memory carvings, right? Right, right. Uh, but before we sure, segue ahead. right in there, let me, let me say one thing. Thanks, sure. This book could have been about the creative practices of elders, and it's not. The, 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 the secondary line to it is life story objects and their makers. So it's about right. this very narrow set of practices that elders have. Now, having said that, it, it, the, these things are things that people 
make that are associated with their past, their childhood, or, or favorite stories or narratives that they make to share with other people to t- help facilitate the telling mm-hmm. of those stories. Um, having said that, my grandmother was a great cook, and mm-hmm. I could have done the same type of thing with certain recipes and foods that she made that linked with uh, her family and growing up, and she wanted to share those with us, or to music. Uh, you go out to a local jam session or something, you often will find a uh, an older musician there who's playing songs that connect with a certain period in their life or time. Mm-hmm. So we could have opened it up quite a bit more, mm-hmm. but this is a narrow set with these life story objects, which Bob Taylor, right. uh, we'll come back around to him, <laughs> uh, which Bob Taylor was an exceptional artist, is an ex- exceptional artist in, in making. He creates, a, he started carving when he was eight years old, uh, continued to carve throughout his life, both as a hobby, but also as a professional. Uh, he was a pattern maker, made uh, everything from missile component patterns to tractor parts, automobile parts, basically carving out of wood things that would be cast in metal. Mm. Uh, but when he retired, he kind of set aside all that kind of commercial carving work, and he decided he wanted to carve a memory, a very specific memory, a memory of a, of a festival he went to as a child. And he basically spent a, a year researching that memory, trying to track down uh, elements of it, sketching them, resketching them, putting them together. And then he spent another six months or a year carving that memory. Right. Uh, and I started asking myself when I, when I met several of these seniors, is why? What's going on there that someone to to make something that uh, is a beautiful, almost photographic, detailed piece of art? why would you spend six months researching a carving? And I realized that that research was doing nearly as much as the creative practice was. Mm. Going out, talking with people about their memories, going and visiting the, the, the childhood spot, looking at it very intently, talking to other family members about what they recalled. Uh, and that became just as much a part of, uh, of the creation as the actual putting chiseled wood. It's a, it's a fascinating aspect of the book is the, I think that in that chapter in particular, you, you bring up the term collaborative reminiscence uh, with the uh, church, in particular, a church carving, right? St. John's or something St. Like John's Church over at White Creek. Yeah, uh, having to talk with other family members about what they remembered about the church. Right. He remembered it one way, they remembered it another way, and then when he talked to an older cousin, they found out they were both right. They both were just remembering different aspects. <laughs> That's a fascinating things. aspect, right? The idea that, you know, while you while you go about the business of thinking about your memory and doing research on it uh, and trying to see, well, maybe I didn't remember everything I needed to, or maybe I'm misremembering things as well. I think he's talking at some point about something he did when he was eight years old, right? Right, and Trying right. to get back into that space is you need to have the research. Right. I mean, I, I, it was really liberating for me because when I started doing this work, I started thinking about, I don't have that many memories <laughs> about real clear memories. It's all right. pretty fuzzy from yeah. like my childhood. Right. You know, I don't remember. You know, who was that? Right. What happened there? Uh, but then I realized that there are there are other people that are older and and, and people who live closer to places that uh, that probably do remember, and that would be a great uh, 
great experience to track it's, those. It down. is a constructive act, you know, and that's exactly. that's what's fascinating about this to me as well. Um, now, another thing that I thought was interesting is that uh, you touched on the medium them, itself, like the, the medium being specific to a person, why they choose what they choose, sometimes being very significant. And you talked about why wood for, for Bob. He, he didn't give necessarily an entirely, you know, revelatory answer maybe, but, you know, he thought it was soft. Um Expressive, maybe I don't. Not hard and cold. It wasn't hard and cold like like some sculptural materials. Uh, it's uh, not as it's has more rigidity than than uh, than paper media. But one of the things I bring out th- with all of the elders that I, that I write about is the fact that the media has to be important to them in some mm. way. Uh, if you think about it, all over the United States, there's been this this surge of creative aging practices. Mm. There are workshops where musicians go in and play music with them. There are activities where people do collage acts, and they're they're set up as uh, an afternoon or a couple days of fun with an artist in residence or even a week of that. Many of the elders that I work with were talking about spending months actually researching right. and designing and making. A- and the medium uh, often is very important to them, very special to them, uh, in a variety of ways. Like Bob, it was because he grew up with it. It, Wood was instinctual to him. Using tools, those tools were instinctual to him. Uh, Marianne Sykes that we'll talk about, it was because there was a local rug hooking club that was there that she got introduced to. It has to be relevant, either because your personal identity, your cultural heritage, or your just proxemics of of your, uh, your current context of where you live, that social situation. It's time for a break. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Memory in My Hands, and our guest is John Kay, whose new book is titled Folk Art and Aging, Life Story Objects and Their Makers. Uh, Our music for this break is the Hoagie Carmichael song, Rockin' Chair, performed by Mildred Bailey. When we come back, we'll highlight Marion Sykes, who makes hook rugs in order to tell happy stories from her life. Stay stay with us for more Life Story Objects with John Kay when we return to Interchange on WFHB. Judgment Day is here. Chain to my rocking chair. Oh, rocking chair got me. Support for Interchange and WFHB comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of high-speed internet, voice, TV, and home automation service. Smithville is nationally recognized by industry experts as a top 100 broadband company. More information on Smithville's full line of services is available at smithville.com. Judgment Day is here. 
Sorry, Jen. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Tonight's show is Memory in My Hands. We're joined in the studio for our program by John Kay, Professor of Practice and Director of Traditional Arts Indiana in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. We're talking about his book, Folk Art and Aging, which highlights five Indiana seniors and their life story objects, their art. Now, we're going to play a little clip here uh, from one of the um, artists in the book. Her name is Marion Sykes. What, when did you begin to do this? How old were you? I'm 80 years old. And you're? I'm 89. (laughs) (laughs) I did three rugs in um, 2004, the first time I ever did anything. I started in Iowa, and I did that one with the lambs and the chickens and the farm. And funny thing is the uh, building looks like my garage before I even saw the garage. And Bob helped me with the uh, uh, Mellor ducks. I asked him what a Mellor <laughs> duck looked like, and he showed me. He drew pictures of Mellor ducks. So I th- drew three Mellor ducks on the rug. They look like bombers, but that was one of my first. The, the lamb, that, and I think Halloween, mm-hmm. those three. The subject matter is just trying to remember mostly the past, trying to mem- remember the good things of the past. And uh, just want to show kids running around and doing things. And if you look at my rugs, I, I do a lot of little tiny things like uh, the North Avenue Beach. You could see the buildings in the background. You could see across the lake in Michigan, the kids playing there. And there's some fishermen over on the left, close to the buildings. One of the fishermen has a little fish. You got to look really close. He's got a fish on a hook. I always try to put a little surprise somewhere, you know. That was Marianne Sykes talking about her um, art. She's a rug hooker. Um, that was pretty good. I, I liked listening to what she had to say about it, to de- about the details of her art, her practice of her art, as well as some of the things that she wanted to include in it. Um, that chapter in particular in the book, uh, John, is, is really a deep chapter uh, because of a lot of what had happened to uh, Mary. I'm saying it wrong, aren't I? Marion the librarian. Marian. Okay, that's, says that, that works for me. Marion the librarian. Marion, um, her, her life wasn't a happy one. Well, her early life was mm-hmm, not a happy mm-hmm. one. She, uh, her mother died when she was just a, a very, very small child. Her father, because of the time period and because of their Sicilian heritage, was not able to take care of uh, uh, take care of her. Um, uh, so he took her and her, her three sisters to an orphanage, and they were. Raised pretty much until Marianne was 14 in uh, in an orphanage in Chicago, Angel Guardian. But uh, she was raised in a very strict and harsh uh, uh, environment that uh, really troubled her for many, many years. She saw lots of, uh, uh, I, I won't say abuse, but I'll say harsh, har- harsh situations. Uh, and she, uh, there was a lot of trauma uh, that came mm-hmm. from that. And she's very vocal about that. Now, now, one of the little things about that was uh, she didn't make rugs based upon those 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 kind of scary p- memories from her childhood. She made 
stories, uh, story rugs about the the times when her own children were little for the most part, the happy memories mm-hmm. to, to conjure and remember those. And for most of her life, she never hooked, uh, she never told the stories of Angel Guardian. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until after she started hooking uh, these story rugs, these narrative rugs, that she kind of created a space in her life that she could open up about them. Yeah, I think somewhere in the in that chapter you talk about that, you know, when she did do that, she began also to remember more things as well. It's one of the things that seemed interesting in the, in in practice again, the practice of of doing the work of doing of creating things of even um, you know putting yourself back in that in that space, I think unlocks a little bit more as you go, right? Right. It, it's a, a creative practice. It's not about a creative product. And right, so that right, practice, right. you know, pulling from like meditation and things is mm-hmm. is something you go to and it, it becomes a rejuvenating process of of opening up and thinking through uh, things that then lead to the next thing. Right. That's the difference between reminiscence and life review that mm. this, these projects are doing. Reminiscence is just like thinking about something casually and, and just, you know, letting it fleetingly leave. Life review is thinking about it uh, critically, mm. uh, thinking about what happened and trying to make sense about it in the present. Well, staying with it in a, while you're working on something obviously keeps you in that moment as well, keeps you in the memory, keeps you in the, the process itself. Right. You've got it, to review it. You've it, got to be critical Exactly. It. And one of the neat things about the material life review projects of, of these elders is the fact that now if, if Grandma or, or Uncle George or whoever's wants to tell you the story about the, the Mallard Ducks and it's the 20th time that they've tried to tell you this story and you've heard the story a few times, you, you start getting a little, you don't realize, why is this so important to them? Why, mm. why are they trying to tell me this? But when someone's doing it with a material object, there's a lot more forgiveness. Oh, that's a beautiful mallard duck. Oh, this really turned out really mm-hmm. well here. I really like uh, uh, like what you've done there. And, it, and it's almost like you're inviting mm-hmm. to be told more about mm-hmm. it uh, rather than... Uh, rather than if someone's just saying it in words. Well, the, uh, another aspect of this is that the objects seem to intend that conversation, uh, you know, they almost require it. it. Yeah. They anticipate it, the fact that they're, they're made not just be products to look at, but also, uh, as I said, a, a practice, uh, a meditative practice, a ritual uh, in it, but also with this idea of there's going to be these social interactions mm-hmm. in the future that you're going to get to share them. Well, um, you know, uh, that chapter two obviously discusses her difficult child childhood, as you say, but in that childhood, she has periods where she visits her father in Chicago and in, in Little Italy or... In yeah. Little Italy, uh, it was kind of a stark distinction between the, the institutional life in the in the Catholic orphanage uh, where everything was, as she would say, do or die. Yeah. Uh, or, and then this this uh, little Italy where everything was outside and it was, uh, she would say it was dirty and it was noisy. <laughs> it's and like it, teeming it, life on the street. It, exactly. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it, was, it was really a, a fun place for her. And she'd get to go for two weeks uh, during the summer to experience that. And then she'd go back into this institution <laughs> it's horrible, uh, yeah. with a, a totally uh, a stark distinction there. Well, that's uh, a key issue that she brings up. She wants to make happy memories, she says, right? She wants to remember or at least create happy memories, which I think, again, is an interesting aspect of what's going on here. She's not, as you say, remembering everything, or she may be remembering it. She's not putting it into her art. Right. Uh, Just like uh, anytime you tell a story, you have to choose what's 
left in and what's left out. And so there's all types of things that are that are uh, included that weren't actually part of the the narrative landscape, but she's something that she wants to talk about, like a a uh, favorite doll or a cartoon character from her childhood. Uh, or there are things that are omitted, like a, uh, an ex-husband who she has choice things to say <laughs> about. No, another uh, another <laughs> a difficult aspect of her life, obviously, yeah, living it, it, with, with him and in that, I guess, was a dilapidated house as well. And, it, exactly, yeah. going from one controlling situation to another yeah. controlling situation. This is Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about art, story, and aging and how these can make meaningful our uh, elder days or aging days, I suppose. Uh, and I'm joined in the studio by John Kay, Director of Traditional Arts Indiana. We're talking about Marion's Marion Sykes, um, who hooks rugs or hooked rugs. And uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, too, is uh, you mo- you note actually, and I think it's in the, actually in the notes section of or in the epilogue, maybe, where you talk about how uh, her family comments on her skill or on trying to say, oh, she's getting better and things like that. And you comment, well, I don't know how to gauge what that means generally. She, these are memory practices. These, you know, and, and their concern, I don't know if it was their concern, but their focus was on her capacity to make art is she getting better at making the rugs right it, it, one of the things that was happening and, and especially because some of these elders are really really talented and and the, their work is just stunningly beautiful bob and and marianne's work is just gorgeous and so when you see it and you, you first of all you set up this the scenario where it's like Oh, can you believe an, an older person made this? And of course it was an older person. They've had time to develop those skills. Um, but um, the other part of that is that they uh, you start viewing it as a product rather than a process, mm-hmm. uh, as I've mentioned before. And to collapse it down to just look at it as a work of art right. fails to see the co- really complex process that brought it into creation. Uh, or, or into existence. Uh, and and so I was trying to highlight that creative practice in such a way that we don't just look at it as, oh, you know, mom's paintings aren't that pretty, you know. <laughs> oh, I've got another one of those. Really think about what's going on. It's beyond the work of art. Right. Uh, it's really doing more about uh, about life review and, and social interaction of sharing those creations. Now, um, we, let's move on to uh, Gus Potoff uh, because uh, he and uh, Marion share, uh, share, at least share trauma in their lives, I suppose, and, and maybe the, a lot of what um, comes out of their work or comes out of the, the, what they put into it comes from that trauma. Gus uh, was in the uh, death camps in, in Burma, is that right? Yeah, in, in the, along the Burma-Thailand border, he was... Um, um, uh, captured when he was just 17 years old, four weeks into his deployment with the Dutch Indonesian army. Uh, he was captured by the Japanese, sent to uh, Burma, Thailand, and uh, basically spent the next four years in these series of death camps. Uh, and I call them death camps because over 16,000 people died building this this railway system, the Japanese Imperial Railway System, um, and include things that, like uh, the bridge on the River Kwai, right. which uh, people might remember, and the Hellfire Pass, and just the toll that it took on, on the number of both uh, prisoners of war but also the local citizens there was really, really harsh. Now, he, uh, he ended up moving to um, 
Columbus? Columbus, Columbus, Indiana. Yeah, Columbus, um, and moved his family there. He worked for Cummins, right? He worked for Cummins as an engineer, and um, engineer mechanic, and, and uh, came in 1966, I think. Mm. Coming from? Uh, coming from uh, um, Indonesia at that came, point. Came right from and stayed, believe, stayed around. I, he went, yeah, he, he, he moved around yeah. uh, a bit. Well, it's hard to imagine. There, there are a few things. There's, um, I guess, a, a documentary they did, uh, uh, Lest We Forget is the name of it? Yeah, Lest We Forget a documentary was produced by uh, the local... Uh, WFII? Uh, uh, FIU. That sounds no, here. Yeah, no, it was <laughs> the one in Indianapolis, <laughs> FYI. I FYI, guess. I think. Yes. Uh, but you you get to see uh, historical footage and that, not necessarily, I mean, uh, I guess it's not August, but... Um, you know, people, men in diapers, basically. It, it just uh, loincloths. Yeah, loincloths. It's diapers, just, uh, it's all, uh, it's all war. Everything's worn away. And, and one of his paintings shows him ter- transforming from this, you know, young, healthy, uh, vibrant uh, soldier into this prisoner of war. And that's being a great a skeleton. one. That, that particular, that particular painting is quite, quite interesting and moving. Right, and, and many of his, uh, of his paintings uh, are narratively incomplete, much like Marianne could decide what would go in and what would go out. His paintings are often more diagram-like and also often very loose in in their painting, but that's because they're intended to be narrated, intended to be told, Mm. intended to be uh, talked about. Uh, Gus has an incredibly thick accent. I mean, almost unintelligible at times and uh yeah the documentary actually close captioned his his conversation exactly uh and you can imagine he's volunteering after he retires he didn't start painting until after he retired Mm -hmm. Uh, he starts volunteering at a local veterans museum and he's asked to uh to tell people about uh his survival and in fact he feels like he it's his responsibility to tell people that's Mm -hmm. his work that he does but he would talk to people and no one could understand him uh, and they would get frustrated with it and that sort of thing. And then he starts painting mm. and the paintings start to uh, allow him between the images and pointing and what he says, all of a sudden stories start to become more and more illuminated and people start to grasp the, just the horrific uh, nature of his uh, imprisonment and, and his right. survival. Well, at one point in your ch- in that chapter, you talk about how um, the work of art mediates the past with the present. We mentioned this earlier, I think, as well, how it looks to the future and combating the forgetfulness of humanity. It's one of our key features as creatures, I think, is that we, we forget. Um, so it's right. an interesting and practice to, to work hard not to forget some of these things. Right, and, and, you know, and let's face it, forgetting can be a very, can be a luxury too. It's useful too. too it's right? useful to yeah. forget yeah. some things, but... But Gus finds um, uh, wants to make sure that people don't remember how uh, how horrible people right. can treat sure. other people, and and how many people have uh, have died for uh, certain ideologies. Right. Well, he reminded me a little bit of uh, um, Kurt, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Billy Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, uh, Billy Pilgrim comes unstuck in time. I don't know if you if you read the book, and probably you read it many many years ago, but it's classic. But he he kind of reminded me of of that character who who has to you know sort of not necessarily fix some of the the past, but has gone through that trauma of war and has has kind of a disjunctive uh, memory of it, along with some 
space adventures, of course. Uh, <laughs> so, of course, so, of course. Um, but uh, Gus's practice is interestingly similar in its sort of spiritual aspects to of tying his own relationship with what uh, I think is called his higher power and his angel, rainbow angel. Or yeah, the rainbow yeah. angel. It, it, yeah. It de- his daughter says he has a very strong connection with his higher power right. and uh, right. a very, very, very uh, strong uh, religious man. Uh, and within his paintings, he paints uh, visions of, of the of the dead, of the spirits, of ghost elephants that mm-hmm. are moving timbers, helping the uh, uh, the people, the all-seeing eye of God, looking down on them. Mm-hmm. And one of them, uh, the strongest elements, is this this rainbow angel that came to him throughout his life and encouraged him. Uh, and when he felt like he was about to die. Uh, that rainbow angel would say, we're not ready for you yet, and mm. encourage him. And now he's got a painting of the rainbow angel right. that sits in his studio and kind of prods him on to, right. to create more. It's uh, one of those uh, things that you, uh, I guess personally I struggle with in terms of its military aspect, right? A lot of this is, there's a, it's a military museum that his work is in, and and you got this this sort of, again, it's a kind of, a for me, a personal disjunction with with speaking against war in some sense, right? Speaking against what happened, speaking against this kind of activity, but, you know, it's in a memorial war museum at the same time, and these kinds, you know, the, it's not Gus that's doing it, it's me as a as a, as a critic of war, I suppose, that right. struggles I, with I, that. I, I think that uh, you can be a critic of war uh, through his work, and I think Gus would be a critic at, at mm. times, but he also wants to um, remember the sacrifices of sure. war and sure. the fact that war created created the the context of war made people do things that maybe they would never have done otherwise it's time for a break this is interchange on wfhb our show is memory in my hands and our guest is john k whose book is folk art and aging life story objects and their makers our music at this break is hazel dickens this uh, is called old and in the way we'll talk about the invisibility that comes with aging and we'll talk about the work of john schoolman and milan opasic very good. All right. Stay with us for more about Life Story Objects with John Kay when we return to Interchange on WFHB. Support for Interchange and WFHB comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of high-speed internet, voice, and TV, and home automation service. Smithville is nationally recognized by industry experts as a top 100 broadband company. More information on Smithville's services is available at smithville.com. 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. This is, um, well, excuse me, tonight's show is Memory in My Hands. I didn't have any memory in my hands there. We're joined in the studio for our program uh, by John Cade, Professor of Practice and Director of Traditional Arts Indiana in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. And we're talking about his book, Folk Art and Aging, which highlights five Indiana seniors and their life story objects. Now, we've talked about um, just three or four now? Three. Three. We've got two left. We're going to try to do them both. We don't have a lot of time in this last segment, but we're going to try to do them both. John Schoolman and uh, Milan Opasic. So at the break, we heard Hazel Dickens sing Old and in the Way. And this seems to be a re- uh, really uh, a problem that faces seniors or elders or uh, uh, older adults. Invisibility, even worse, the sense of being perhaps out of place or even a burden. And your chapter on John Schoolman really drives the, that point home, I think. You write, the maker uses his works of art as a personal strategy for combating the general disregard and indifference towards seniors that often challenges the sociality and quality of life of the elderly. So let's focus on John Schoolman's canes, which are not really for walking, but catalysts for social interactions. Yeah, John Schoolman uh, lived to be 100 years old. And uh, so when you're talking about uh, being an older adult, there, there are different categories of, of older adults. Mm. And when I met his grandson for the first time, he was a retiree as well. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, uh, right. it took a while for me to kind of come to terms with how old is 98, 99, 100 yeah. years yeah. old for, for the years I was working with him. John Schoolman made walking sticks that he inscribed with, uh, uh, poems, pithy sayings, poet, uh, uh, stories, names of important people and places, song lyrics. Uh, and then he would take them, first of all, the sticks were made out of, uh, made out of a variety of wood, but he especially liked uh, sumac. He would dig up the roots. So picture this 96, 97-year-old guy digging up the roots of these sumac, little sm- uh, sumac trees. And then, so they've got this gnarly uh, root system uh, he'd write a poem on it, and then he would uh, wood burn o- over that poem, and he would paint these wild colors and geometric patterns all over it. And he would often put a little goldfinch or, or yellow canary, as he called it, um, uh, that would herald the name of the song or say some important uh, aspect of it. Mm. They're uh, just the, the the few pictures in the book. They're just so colorful. Oh, very colorful. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and and so you see this this little bitty uh, man walking down the street with this get out of town walking stick, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not not long before you're over there going, oh, what a pretty cane! Where'd you get this? What's this? 
And, and it's not until you kind of come up to him one-on-one and you're talking with him uh, that you realize he picks up the stick and he starts rotating it in his hand and he reads the poem or he tells you the story of it uh, and he's got you. I, I <laughs> use the, the metaphor. It's kind of like a fishing lure skimming through the water. When you see this this walking stick, you can't help but ask about it. And that's what he wants. He wants you to stop him. He wants you to interact with him. Uh, he's uh, was a little little man, and he was hard of hearing, and he sometimes didn't formulate his ideas as fast as mm. he would as he would like to have. Uh, and through his sticks, he was able to arrest time to focus in on somebody one on one. Now you mentioned that this is a key aspect of these objects is that they they create that that that's that's what they're there for. Right, they, they become they create this uh, this stage for performance of these sticks, and not performance as in big grandiose right. drama or theater, uh, but a performance of, of bringing them to life to animate those stories, and it's, it attracts people to them. Each of the elders I talk with are very strategic about. Uh, not just the making of their art, but the display and narration of the, those art. Get a forms. sense again. I asked, I think I asked at the, at the beginning of the show were these unique individuals uh, in terms of creating these these particular artworks or 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 using these uh, strategies, as you say. Um, I don't know if that's a practice that's common. Uh, I was trying to think about this. Um, you know, when I think about passing time sometimes uh, we use uh, uh, things like jigsaw puzzles or um, uh, crossword puzzles things that that well jigsaw is probably closer but th- things that kind of mimic the creative process in some sense you know memory of seeing a, a puzzle piece or or and then creating even sometimes a great you know a great representation of a work of art after you put the puzzle piece together and there's this sense that this is this is that kind of act but these these particular people creating these life objects are are really making some fascinating things that I don't know what value they give to them as well in terms of art or as in terms of just things that they they want to engage people with schoolman in particular had thousands of sticks right 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 and he w- and but he only he gave some away right but he, it wasn't he, his intention to give them away right he gave a few of them away but mostly they were there uh, for the keeping and for the thinking and for the the showing uh, and and he was very he always chose, if he was going to do a program or something like that with me, he always chose just the right stick uh, <laughs> for for the occasion. We did a program up in Fort Wayne, and there was a Celtic ensemble that performed, and so he brought a, a, a stick he made that had an Irish toast on it. Nice. Uh, uh, but he also often would bring sticks that told... Um, Either political uh, opinions or or personal stories. He had several sticks that. Well, uh, let's talk about two of them as quickly as we can. With uh, let's go ahead with the political one and talk about the president's cane. He uh, he had a stick he called the president's cane. He made several versions of it, uh, but the one that I write about in the book, uh, he made when uh, uh, President Bill Clinton was being impeached mm-hmm. for his uh, his uh, encounters with Monica Lewinsky, and it, it just infuriated uh, uh, John Schoolman. And so he made this very patriotic-looking walking stick, huge walking stick, uh, that had all the names and the years of service of the presidents, uh, from George Washington right up until uh, uh, Clinton, uh, President Clinton. And then there was this long prong 
uh, shaft of a root stock that stuck out from it, uh, in which it listed a whole uh, several indictments. I have it of, right here in your book, William Clinton, 1993, Kenneth Starr, Whitewater, Clinton lied under oath to the American people, McDougal, Broderick, paid Paula Jones $850,000, travel office, Linda Tripp, Jennifer Flowers, uh, Willie FBI files was impeached by the House, acquitted by the Senate. I did not have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. All on his walking stick. Uh, you can imagine that was just a real passive uh, <laughs> uh, piece of folk art. There, it's a wasn't great. It? It's a. Gr- <laughs> it really is a great stick, though. I mean, oh, it's a beautiful, yeah, beautiful yeah. stick. And you just imagine, you know, when he was walking around uh, Bippus <laughs> or, or right. uh, North Webster, it was it was pretty safe. But you to said be he brought that, that here. Uh, there was a, a, a we, presentation you did here. right? We did an exhibit of his of his uh, sticks here, and, and it was included in the exhibit. And he was very nervous about having this <laughs> this kind of partisan walking stick. Uh, being on display. That's great. That's great. So, and and one, one more real quick. The General Store Cane has kind of an autobiographical, and it's got a poem on it, too. Yeah, right? it's a poem he wrote uh, after his wife had died, uh, Ada, and it tells the story of their life together, and it's just a, a, a beautiful poem that he wrote on an anniver- on their anniversary uh, the year after his, his wife died, I believe, or maybe it was a few years after, and then he inscribed it on the stick, and it became... It was of all of his walking sticks. He made over a thousand walking sticks, and of all of them, it was probably the most worn and mm. and used. And because it was the stick that he used to announce who he is, right. who he was, and, and to share that with other people. This is Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is on art, story, and aging, and how those make meaningful days. I'm joined in the studio by John Kay, Director of Traditional Arts Indiana. We're going to turn to Milan Opasic before we run out of time. And Jen, let's play the audio clip that we have for that. Well, the first prima player that I played with was played on a turtle turtleback instrument, and I was enthralled by a turtleback prima. So the first prima that I was going to make, I decided was going to be. One, of, one made out of a turtle shell. My brother had a friend in uh, Valparaiso that had a farm, and on that farm they had this swamp, and the owner said there are turtles galore in this swamp. So we ventured to Valparaiso. My brother, who was an expert marksman with the gun, we sat on the shores and one raised its head and he nailed it. And from that turtle shell, I took it to the plant where I worked, and I made that instrument on government time, which is your lunch hour. I was able to make the scroll head, and I did it with files. I still don't know how I did that. After I completed the instrument, it was not much on sound, but it was an incentive to go ahead and make a number two instrument, which I made out of wood, and I did get better results with that one. Let's 
bolí. Toliko te srce moje. Again, that was uh, Milan Opasic telling a little story about uh, his first... His first prima is a, prima. a turtleback uh, instrument that he made. You describe this story actually in your book. You do a bit of exegesis on it as well. Tell us what you're hearing in that story, John Kay. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting story. It's a story that I've heard dozens and dozens of time from, from Milano Passage. And um, the, the, the turtleback prima was the first instrument he ever made, uh, and he... Uh, he has it. He had it in his shop on display for the whole time. So this this back door to his shop was a was this prima uh, with along with several photographs of his mother and his father and an instrument maker. And it was like a perfect context for the telling of of this life story. Mm-hmm. And in this life story, as you asked, is uh, a story of of family and of support. When I asked him for that uh, that narrative, uh, I said, "Tell me about making your first instrument." If you listen to the story, it's not really about making an instrument; it's about getting the prima. It's about getting the turtle, Uh, and it's about uh, his brother, the the expert marksman, his mother, a cook. uh, He talks about later a neighbor, a butcher. Uh, All of those different elements uh, come out in the story that he tells. Uh, And so really it's a story about family support, about you can do, if you start out uh, uh, slow and and humble uh, through through your community, through your family, you can grow and you can get better little by little. Well, I cut out just a little bit at the end there where he actually says, uh, you know, I went on to do be- you know, more work and they get better each time, progressively better. And <laughs> it's a big part of this too is that these, these uh, artists work a long time <laughs> with a lot of focus and a lot of attention. And it's, you know, sometimes I don't think we pay much attention to that aspect of what's going on. Right, right. Well, and Milan was an amazing artist at building instruments, but one of the things that this chapter in the book does is it tries to open up our understanding of art beyond the making of artwork. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really about this kind of life story display. So it's an instrument, yeah, that he made that uh, is on display, but it's also the photographs and it's uh, the other instruments that are around it all together, and all of that Mm -hmm. summons a story. And so... Uh, even if you're not an artist, I think about my grandmother and the photographs on the back of, uh, uh, on a shelf or on the mantle or something like that. Uh, th- those are also life story projects right. that, that uh, often are under undertaken. Well, before we got on the air, you and I talked a little bit about what, what seems uh, an unfortunate aspect of our current times. We don't maybe have things to remember anymore in a lot of ways and and our youth culture in particular but as we are looking at our iPads and our phones and our computers and not necessarily experiencing anything except those screens in front of us what are we going to remember when we're old and gray well I I think that there's there there may be some of that of uh uh, I, I don't like to judge any generation. I judge, I judge of, people uh, all the time. It's like, <laughs> just, let's just do. It. They're young kids. Judge but, them. But I do think that it, it's kind of like food. I often say that it's uh, it's uh, it, your creative practices are. Uh, it can be like McDonald's. You can eat. Sometimes it's good to have McDonald's. You need something fast and quick. But 
it's not the it's not going to sustain you in the right. same way. I think it's the same way with creative practice. You know, doing those jigsaw puzzles uh, are probably good for the brain and it's really great, but it's not the same as doing, you know, memory drawing. And memory drawing maybe is not the same as having uh, a memory practice right. uh, of doing this type of artwork. So I think it's uh, it, it's all all a process. Well, that is all the time we have. Thanks to John Kay, Director of Traditional Arts Indiana and Professor of Practice in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology for talking about his work and the book that highlights it, Folk Art and Aging, Live Story Objects and Their Makers. That's uh, published by Indiana University Press. Thanks for joining me, John. Thank you very much. We'll close the show with Sarah Vaughn's version of September Song, and I'll confess that I like this much better, this version in particular, than the male version sung by Sinatra. So, There you go. Uh, It takes out the male stuff at the beginning, so I I like that. Uh, Next time on Interchange, The Ghost of Birds, essayist, polemicist, translator of Octavio Paz, Jorge Luis Borges, and Bay Dow, to name only the most prominent, Elliot Weinberger will join us to talk about his latest book of essays, which offers a continuation of his book, The Elemental Thing, and collects pieces published in places like the New York Review of Books and the London Review of Books. The subjects of of these range from the I Ching to American Indophilia to the poet Charles Reznikoff. Listen to this from Tigers. A stern moralist, Tipu instituted his version of Quranic law. He changed the calendar and all the weights and measures, renamed all the cities and towns, reformed every detail of daily existence from the way the markets were organized to the way the crops were planted and gathered. He kept a book of his dreams. At night, he slept on the floor on a coarse piece of canvas, and each morning he ate the brains of male sparrows for breakfast. He sponsored the arts. That's Elliot Weinberger and the Ghosts of Birds next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Our board engineer is Jennifer Brooks, and Joe Crawford is executive producer. The Jazz Menagerie with Carl Pearson comes up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB.